the reality is that this moment, this day, this closing out of this series is even more significant. And so I just want to encourage you to, to think of it in those terms and to come at it from this perspective that just because we're closing out this this series doesn't mean that the principles that we've dealt with and been called to through this series stop. In fact, we can really take this series all the way back to September of this last year when we started with our study through Leviticus chapter 23, where we dealt with the seven sabbatical festivals, recognizing God's call on his people to worship. We can track it back even to New Year's Day or the New Year's service. I'm sorry, it was the first Sunday in the new year when, when I preached a message that called us to live a life that counts. Not a life that is perceived in the world as one that counts, but one that counts in the kingdom. That's the life that matters. We, we can track it to the moment when Jesus Christ was on the cross and saying, it is finished, and calling out to his Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he's dying. The reality is that these principles that Jesus gave us are the principles or the expectations he has for his church. The, the, the principles established by Jesus in these letters to these seven churches speak to us today and teach us how to approach all of life as worship towards God in Christ. They teach us how to live in light of the gospel. These letters to these churches, they don't establish a law for us, a law for Christians that we have to abide to maintain righteousness. We're righteous in Christ. We don't need a law. However, as people who are fallen and struggling in this life, we need instruction about how to respond to the gospel rightly. How to respond to the gospel in such a way that it's actually an act of worship as, a, as opposed to us struggling with our fallen flesh. And these principles teach us that. They give us that and enable us to recognize how we are called, not just to live as worship in these moments like this, but in all of life. And they help us learn to do that. But today, it's going to be a heavy one. It's going to be intense. It's going to be uh, maybe, maybe hit some of you right at home. We're dealing with probably the church that was the worst of the worst. Two of the churches... Philadelphia and Smyrna. If you'll remember, they only received commendation. They were the smallest churches. They were perceived from the outside as being unsuccessful and, and maybe not living up to all, everything that was expected of them. But they were the churches that Jesus looked at and only had good things to say to them. Then there were three churches, Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, that were kind of, they were kind of on middle ground. They had some good about them and they had some bad about them. Still, Jesus loved them and he encouraged them and he challenged them to, to, to repent and to follow him. And then we have Sardis, which is kind of in a camp by itself. Sardis is a, is a church that didn't get any commendation. Jesus didn't look at them and say, this is what I see good about you. And I want to encourage that. The one really good thing he had to say about them was really part of his rebuke. Because they had a few Christians who were still, who had not stained their robes, their white robes, which essentially meant that they weren't partnering or compromising with the world, but they were still striving to live in this holiness, yet they weren't actively missionally engaging the culture around them. And he called them to wake up. They had, they had fallen asleep. They weren't, they weren't doing the things that he called them to do. They weren't performing the works that he had for his church. And so while he didn't have anything to commend them about, he had at least a compliment that he could pay them. But in Laodicea, another one all by itself, he has not a good word to say. In fact, his language is so strong that there's going to be a point in which he tells this church that they make him sick. They make him sick. 
that he wants to vomit because of them. So here, uh, we're just going to listen to his words. We're going to deal with his words. And, and instead of me just going on about what he has to say, we're going to start with what he has to say. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. We'll actually finish the chapter out today. <clears throat> but this is what he says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Every week we've come to this place where Jesus does two things. He's, he addresses the church. He lets us know where the church exists at. And then he identifies himself. Here we see that this church is in Laodicea, and it is a church. There's been a lot of discussion about whether these people are Christian or whether they're, they're not unregenerate people that com- compromise this or, 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 or fill this, um, this gathering of people, this ecclesia. The reality is that I think that the reason Jesus is writing to them and addressing them and promising them hope is not because they're in un- unregenerate or non-Christians. I think the reality is that these are Christians who are not doing what they're supposed to do, who are living in freedom more than they're living in his commands and living in obedience. And I think the reality is is that he's addressing them because they are his people. But he's got some harsh words to say to them. You see, the reality is, is that this city, just like every other city, this is the one common thing that we can find in every one of these cities. The gospel was brought there, and the gospel took root there. See, Laodicea was a city... Very affluent. In fact, in some of the study I did, there was uh, one of the websites that's talked about some of the more recent excavations that have happened there. Spoke of a house that was found that was twenty, or I'm sorry, two thousand square meters. Two thousand square meters. Now we think of houses in square feet, so I had to do the conversion because meters doesn't mean anything to me. So I converted it. Twenty-one thousand square feet is actually over that. That is a. I, I don't. Do, do you know anybody that lives in a house like that? That's big. I don't don't know what that would cost in today's terms, but I'm just saying that 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 wasn't even just the only house like that, that there's demonstrations of affluence all over the city. This city was so wealthy that they enjoyed many of the common things that we would consider part of the niceties of life, like indoor plumbing. They had comforts and enjoyed comforts in life. Even in a day and age when we look back and think, life must have been difficult then. It must must have been hard to live without electricity and without the, without the internet, they had begun to build and deal with and, and shape comforts for their life. They were so wealthy, in fact, this city was so wealthy that there was an earthquake in, in about 60 A.D., if I'm getting my, yeah, 60 A.D., and when it happened, it devastated the city. And Rome came in and said, hey, we'll help you guys out. We'll give you some aid, and we'll, we'll not make you pay taxes, and, and we'll just help you out. And they said, you know what, we've got so money, we don't need your help. And this region is known for that. So it devastated other cities, and they depended on the help of Rome. But Laodicea is so rich that it needed the help of the Roman government. The city was well known for glossy black wool that they made into clothes, and that's one of the ways that they made all their money. This was a very desirable textile that they, that they, would, uh, that they would sell and that they were known for. People would come to them to Medical, I guess, in some form or fashion. I think there was some pagan worship that went along with this as well. But they developed an ISAB that, that would heal certain things to do with eye, eye problems. There was a real result from it. And they were finding medicinal value in this ISAB that they had developed. And people from all over the region would come to this place and buy this ISAB. 
another way, one of the ways they made money. They enjoyed these things, and, and, and they lived in this life. And like every other city, pagan worship was, was very common there. As in these excavations, they found statues of Zeus and all kinds of other false gods, and, and they obviously there was a, a large Jewish influence there, and they worshipped the emperor just as every other city in the Roman Empire did. But as I've said every week, it was this environment in which the gospel took root. Now, I want to bring this to a point today, and because we've seen it over and over and over and over, this is the common theme that can be seen in every one of these cities. Nothing, nothing, hear me, nothing, and I mean nothing, can stop the power of the gospel. Nothing can stop it. This was, these were unfriendly environments. These were people who did not invite a missionary into their culture and say, hey, would you come and teach us? They didn't look for the gospel. They didn't want the gospel. They didn't think they needed the gospel. They felt that they were self-sufficient. They needed nothing. And the gospels brought, preached, and takes root and births a church. A church with, that was in pretty big trouble at this point, but at some level, it was a church. It was a gathering of God's people. Nothing can stop the power of the gospel. Today, even today, because of the gospel, we are. We are a church because of the gospel. We're not a church because I had a grand idea. We're not a church because you decided to show up. We're not a church because we got buildings and trappings and programs and methods and, 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 and music. We're not a church because we meet in homes across the city. We're a church because the gospel took root in people's lives and has begun to change them and bring forth the fruit that God has decided is going to be born in our lives. Nothing can stop the power of the gospel, but let me give you this caveat. Nothing stops the power of the gospel, but we direct its flow. We can't derail God's plan. We can't undermine what he's doing. We are not more powerful than him. But for whatever reason, by his sovereign choice, by his sovereign will, he has decided to work through his people. That's you and me. That's the people in Laodicea. It's the people across town that are meeting and worshiping. And see, nothing can stop the power of the gospel, but you and I can direct its flow. And by God's choice, he's chosen us to do this. And so now we can either live as conduits through, through whom the gospel flows, or we can live as clogs through, through whom the gospel stops. And all the way through this letter, it's an indication. It's a call to these Christians because they've become a plug in the pipeline. They're not living for the gospel. They're not living as a result of the gospel. They're not continuing in the gospel. They're not depending on the gospel. And so this, these words that Jesus is going to say, over and over, you're going to hear it. It's a call back to him and his gospel. A call to depend on him and his gospel. He goes on and introduces himself. It's still in verse 14. He introduces himself just like he has in every other letter. And let me just summarize what he says here. He says that I, Jesus says, I'm the uncaused cause in which all of life finds meaning. And you're like, man, that's not what it sounds like to me. Amen, faithful and true, the beginning of creation. How do you get that? Well, amen, it's simply, it, it, it's, it's another title for God, just as we've seen him give himself divine titles over and over. But it's also a word of affirmation. Now, we don't think of, of the word amen as an introduction because we use it at the end of our prayers. We use it as a closing. 
And so we, we finish our words and, and we say, in Jesus' name, amen. And if we're praying together and other people say amen, there's this, this sense of affirmation. I agree. As I'm preaching along, it's happened once this morning already. Thank you, brother. I'll give you props for that. As I'm preaching along and somebody gets excited about what I'm saying or feels good about what I'm saying and they say amen, it does more than just excite me. I'm not going to preach hard. Sure, I get all pumped up when you get into it with me. But the reality is it's not just about me. It's about your decision to agree with what I said. The word amen simply is an affirmation. It's a way in which you can say, I agree with what you're saying. I believe it's true. In fact, in this title, Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. And amen, whether you recognize it or not, is not an English word. It's Hebrew. And so he comes to us and he tells us that he's the amen, the faithful and true witness. And so what he's telling us, he's giving us, I'm the amen, and then he's interpreting it for these people who probably didn't speak Hebrew. I'm the amen. I'm the affirmation. I'm the, I'm the truth. I'm the faithful one. I'm the one that always comes through. I'm dependable. I'm, I'm the one that you can count on. I'm the one that's always going to be there. I'm the one that's always going to fulfill his promises. I'm the one that's going to speak to you truth when everything else around you in this world will lead you to believe in a lie. I'm the one. He wants you to see that. He wants you to see him, him as a centrality, a central figure in your life. He wants his people in Laodicea to understand it's me. I am the amen. I am the one in which brings agreement to the truths of God. All the truths of God are brought together and point to the centrality of the figure and man, the man God, Jesus Christ. He's the faithful and true witness, the beginning of all creation. Paul, in fact, I'm studying this book through this book with a group of guys here. And I really, man, I appreciate this. This is one of the most fruitful things that I get to do. Uh, just being able to sit with men and, and just read the Bible uh, separate, come together and discuss what, what we're learning. There's, I want to expand that in the church, and there's things I want us to do with that. But the reality is that right now, this is what I'm getting to do. And, and we're reading Colossians right now. And this is one of the verses this week that, that we came across. And it just rung true with what Jesus was saying here. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. You, see, you hear that? It's what you can see and what you can't see, what exists and what, what, what doesn't seem to exist by our perspectives. What, what dominions, which is, is kingdoms of their own or, or, or authorities, which we would you know, think of our government. These things all exist. The natural creation in the spiritual realms all exist because Jesus created them. All things were created through him and for him. You see, the reality is this, is that what Paul is saying to the Colossians, and just as a side note, if you read the, word, the letter of the Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, you'll see that Paul also instructed this letter to be read in Laodicea. So I think that these Laodiceans would have heard this phrase. They would have gotten it. They would have understood it because they recognized Jesus as preeminent or had been taught that Jesus was to be preeminent. When you remove Jesus, life loses its purpose. And so we have to begin to make up new reasons to keep going on. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm the affirmation. I'm the true and faithful witness. My words, my commands, my, my, my perspectives, my, my, my thoughts and my intents, my motives. Who I am, who I always will be, who I always have been is truth. And I will always be these things because I am faithful. 
I am the beginning. I am the source of life. I am the source of creation. And when you put this whole perspective together, you begin to learn that Jesus is the uncaused cause that gives all of our life meaning. But when we remove him, our lives lose purpose. And we have to begin to make up things to do. Make up things to be. Make up ways to use our time and and our resources. You see, the reality is that the Bible all through the New Testament is calling people to recognize that we have substituted our creator with his creation. That we've given ourselves to our kingdoms and building our own or living out our own agendas and, and, and being a people who we want to be in rebellion to who God designed us to be. And Jesus comes to this place and he says, here, I'm about to say some very hard words. I'm about to speak to you very directly. And I want you to hear it. I want you to know that they are the words, the one who is created and who all of life finds purpose and meaning. And so that's what he says. That's how he introduces himself. And he goes on in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, just so you know, that word spit is kind of whitewashed for us because, you know, we're civilized folk. It means vomit. You ever vomited? It's not a, oh man, that's just a little gross. No, it's projectile. It's getting it out of your mouth. It's making you sick. You don't want it there. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, I'm just going to say, I'm going to state the obvious. There's not much good going on in that. Not a commendation to be seen. In fact, there's not just a missing commendation, but there's another stark absence there. We saw it in Sardis as well. The reality is is that this church, not only does Jesus not have anything good to say about them, they're not persevering for his name, they're not dealing with patient endurance, there's no repression, there's no sacrifice, there's no, no way in which their lives are being given for his glory. That's a problem. You see, here's the, here's the principle that I think we need to draw from this, just as we drew it from Sardis, but maybe a little more specific today. Suffering for Jesus' name is the expectation, not the exception to the Christian life. It is the expectation. Jesus said, people are going to hate you because of me. Jesus said, he who endures, remember, endurance sucks. He who endures shall be saved. The Christian life was never meant to be easy. It was, we, we were never called to life on easy street. Somebody has lied to you if they said to you, trust in Jesus and life will be great. I think it gets more difficult because now we can see the truth about who we are. We can recognize that my heart is torn for things other than the God that saved me. I want to do the right thing, but I don't do the right thing. 
I want to have the right motive, but in many cases I'm trying to build my own kingdom. Man, it's difficult to realize how wretched I am. It's harsh. It's hard. Suffering. This is the key phrase here. Suffering for Jesus' name. This is not a call. These people don't assume that Laodicea was all easy street. The life we live in, the world we live in, there is no pursuit that you will give yourself to that doesn't require effort and sacrifice and struggle. People don't get rich. Well, I guess some people do get rich accidentally by giving, receiving it from their parents, but money comes with a struggle of its own. Look at the, look at the stars who are so famous and have, have what much of our culture would think is, have arrived and made it. Man, watch their stories. Look at, look at what they deal with. Look at what they endure. Does that seem pleasant? No. Man, they got struggles. They're addicted to drugs, trying to calm and quiet the problems. And it's difficult. But suffering for Jesus' name, see, this is an entirely Christian thing. Not suffering to build your own kingdom or pursue your own objective, uh, objectives to, 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 to fulfill your own agendas. This is suffering for Jesus' name, for his mission, for his glory, making your life about his fame, making your life and the things that you do and the ways that you live and the, the, the decisions you make and the attitudes you adopt and the motives you work in, making them about Jesus' fame more than your own. But somehow in cultures like Laodicea and ours, it's been flipped upside down on its head. We're told, oh man, if God's in it, you won't face obstacle. You won't face difficulty. I got a word for, I, I can't use this word. I can't, I, there's something I, I just want to use it. I can't. It's a load. That's a big old load. Dumb. How's that? As a lie from the devil, you live in a fallen world. This is earth. To pursue Jesus Christ is a call to sacrifice. It's a call to struggle. It's a call to trial. It's a call to die to self and live for him. It's not what we hear going on in Laodicea, though, is it? It's not. What we see in many of the lives of the people in our churches today. But it's the expectation, not the exception. You don't all have to martyr yourselves, but you all have to die yourselves. That's what Jesus tells us. Man, we've got to deal with it. Just, just the simple fact that he didn't have any good to say gave him more room to deal with the bad that was going on there. So this letter didn't get shorter because there was not that much bad. It got long because there was so much bad. He starts with a metaphor. He starts with a metaphor. He gives us an interpretation of the metaphor and lets us see their perspective of who they are and the reality of who they are. But he tells them that there is something extremely rotten, something bad going on inside that church. And I think it can be all boiled down Hey, that pun is intended because we're going to be dealing with water. All boiled down. I just want to point that out. I thought of that all day. I just want you to, I want you to get how witty I am. Can all be boiled down to this one idea. Spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency. You see, these people in Laodicea 
had replaced their pursuit of Christ with the pursuit of their own lives and their own things and their own own desires, their own agendas. And he comes to this church and he gives them this, this, this metaphor. And he says, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but you're neither. You're lukewarm, and because of that, I'm going to vomit you out. And so here's, we have to understand, we, we're, what is it? What does he mean by that? Well, the context or the culture that they lived in, Laodicea, one of the biggest weaknesses that that city faced was that they didn't have a good water supply of their own. And just north of them in the city called Aeropolis, there was, there was hot springs that bubbled up. This was a volcanic and an extremely seismic active area. There's hot springs up there. And even today, I think if you go there, you find, um, you find bathhouses and wellness houses built on these hot springs because there's a thought that there's medicinal value to them. They're rich with minerals. And so, and so this was where these people decided to get water from. It was the closest city to them. And so they built this, this huge aqueduct system that ran from a few miles from Aeropolis on into Laodicea. By the time the water got to them, it had lost any medicinal value because it wasn't hot. It wasn't like you could soak in a hot tub of water and, and feel better and your muscle cramps ease. It was not good for cooking because it was so rich in minerals and, and it wasn't hot enough. There was, had, had to, something had to happen to make it hot again. But just south of them in Colossae, Colossae was also, had, had these wonderful, cool springs that, that, that came out of the mountains. And so when they were able to drink their water in Colossae, it was like, man, that is so refreshing. Man, I get this too. I was in Africa twice and both times, one, let me say it this way, one time we had no way to cool water. And it, it it's, the, it's the temperature of the areas around you. So, I mean, if it's hot, your water's not very great for drinking. And with the second year, we got ice, but we were so remote that by the day, by day two or three, I think, we were out of ice. And pretty quickly, that water's just as hot as the air is around you. It's not hot enough to really do anything with, but it's just hot enough not to be refreshing, not to be, not to be doing what it was intended to do. It was, it was a chore. It took discipline to actually drink the water so you didn't dehydrate because you didn't want to drink the water. Jesus didn't want anything to do with water that didn't live up to its intended purpose. You're not good for health or cooking. You're not good for, not good for your uh, natural use. You're not good for refreshing someone's thirst. I want nothing to do with you. You make me sick. And a lot of people come in and they try to begin to apply different principles to each of these to each of these hot water, cold water. Jesus doesn't do that for us. And, and I'm not trying to demean their, their ministries. If you listen to people and they talk to you about cold being equal to one thing and hot being equal to another, I'm not saying they're wrong. I just don't know that I can build that argument from this text. What I do see is Jesus then turns around and says, okay, this is what I mean. Here's, here's what I'm saying. You say you're rich. You think that you can see, you think that you got it made, you think that you don't need anything. But you are not. You see, this church, this church had become so satisfied with the world they lived in, they didn't need any more of Jesus. They, they had become so satisfied with, with what they had in life that they didn't need any more of Him to bring them happiness. 
See, they were rich. They thought they, 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 were, uh, they, were, they were living the life. They were living the American dream. I guess maybe the Laodicean dream, you know. Had two cars, two car, maybe even, a, I think today it's probably a three-car garage because we've got to have a boat, you know. We've got we to gotta have the big TV, two cats and dogs. I don't remember how that song goes. But, man, they thought they were successful. They thought they'd figured out some secret to life. But their lives were so full of this world, they didn't have time or energy or need for Jesus and His promises. Hey, Jesus, when we die, we'll look for You. When we come to that point where we can't control it on our own, we'll look for You. When life falls apart and I don't have the bank account that I got today, when I don't have the things that give me security and hope today, when all of the things that I count on for my identity today are gone then I'll look to you. Just hang out, Jesus, and wait. Just hang on. I'll get to you one day. They, they just didn't have room for Jesus. They weren't pursuing Him. They weren't suffering for His sake. In, in case you want to know, in case you have a question about suffering for His sake, Philippians chapter 1 tells us it was not just granted to us was just not gifted to us that we might believe in Him, but that we might also suffer for His sake. It is a gift to you that you get to suffer for Jesus. That's not one we're opening at Christmas, maybe, but it's a gift to you. It's for your good. He wants you to have this because He knows it's going to kill the old selfish you and bring to life the new, beautiful, recreated, regenerated you. So it's impossible. We need to get this. We need to understand this. It is impossible to be satisfied in Christ while finding satisfaction in the things of the world. It is impossible to find satisfaction in, in, in the world at the same level that we find our satisfaction in Christ. James wrote to the church, he says, you, James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people. Man, again, some very direct, hard words. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's the deal. And I try to qualify this every time I say it because I don't want it misunderstood. It's not wrong that you have a nice house or that you're able to have a couple of cars or, or to enjoy some of the technological advances that we have in our, our, our world today. It's not wrong. But here's what we can't do. We can't look to those things for our identity or our satisfaction. The reality is, is that in Christ, we will find our joy and satisfaction. In Christ, He is the only one in whom we can find the greatest and deepest heartfelt needs that we will ever be able to see them satisfied permanently, eternally. And in doing that, He'll bring in things from this creation to demonstrate His goodness, His grace, His provision, His power. You see, He uses His creation that we might see Him even though we're living in a place where it's extremely difficult at times. The community of the church is not an end in itself. It's not where we find our identity. 
the benefits we have in, in walking together in this life, that's not where we, where we find satisfaction. The relationships we have in this church and in, 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 in the Christian realm, they're not the end of themselves. They're, they're not the reason that we exist. They're not the central, the central figure in our life, or they're not intended to be. But he oftentimes, most times, decides to work through his people to help you experience their joy, to help you experience peace, to see your needs met, so that you can walk and in, 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 in experience the fruits of the Spirit, and that you can enable others to walk and experience the fruits of the Spirit. You see, we must first find satisfaction in Christ, and then He will use the things of His creation to demonstrate His identity, His power, His presence, His protection, His provision. There's a lot of peas. That's what He does. But what we can't do is then think, oh, that made me feel good. I'll, I'll just do more of that. I, I like, I like this. I'll just, I'll just get more of that. That'll make me happy. No, that'll leave you empty. You need more Jesus. You got to clear your life out for more Jesus. The motives of your heart, the things you give yourself to, the things you do. The, 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 the things you give your time to, your energy to, your efforts to, need to be about Jesus. They may not look different than those in the world, but the things that underlie them, the, the, the things that motivate them, have to be about Jesus. The unfortunate reality is that this, this letter to the, to the Laodiceans is a commentary on our life today. But it's not changed. There's nothing different. The struggle's the same. It's not our call to sit and look at all the other churches in town or all the other people in town and figure out what's wrong with them. But we are called to deal with it right here. For the way. For us. How do we apply this? See, because here's the deal. I don't think we're Laodicea. I don't think that we are this church that Jesus is writing to. I would say we probably are closer to either uh, to one of those three in the middle. We certainly have our struggles. We certainly have our problems. But we, I think we have a lot of strengths. But I think the unfortunate reality is that there's people in our room, in, in our church, that come and gather with us and nod their heads in agreement while we're here, but then get up and live in such a way that is not in agreement with us. I, I think the unfortunate reality is that there may very well be Laodicean Christians in our midst. But how do we know? How do we figure it out? How do, how do I know if that's me? How, how, well, man, I might be the lay of the same Christian. I hope I'm not. How do I figure that out? We need to live self-examined lives. We need to live examined lives, period. Examined lives, self-examined, it certainly needs to happen from the inside out. But be careful, your heart is deceitful. In fact, that's what the scripture teaches us. We, we lie to ourselves better than we lie to other people. Our hearts will deceive us. We need one another to tell truth and speak in speak truth in love and bring to us and help us see what's really being perceived about us. See, Jesus, man, he didn't hold back. He let them see what they were all about. We need to do that for one another. But let's just take a test right here. Take a test right here, right now. Are we led to seeing Christians? What do you spend the bulk of your time doing? Ask yourself, what do I spend the bulk of my time doing? What do I give the bulk of my effort to? If someone was to walk with me every day of the week and strive to look into my heart and know my motives, 
of why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I'm spending my energy, how I'm spending my time, how I'm spending my money, what would they say about me? If we remove Jesus from your life, think about it. I'm talking not just about Sunday and Christmas and Easter. You know, everybody's got Jesus then. I'm talking about if we remove Jesus from your life, would the priorities change? Would they? What do you prioritize your life around now? What do you make sacrifices for? You know what? One of the things that is huge in our culture, it's a, it's a, it's a false god of its own, is sports. I know people that will sacrifice to make sure they don't miss a game, but won't sacrifice an ounce to make sure that they can serve somebody else that's in need. What do you sacrifice for? What do you fear most? What causes worry and stress in your life? Is it because you can't figure out how to get this person saved? I received an email. I read it to our leadership team this last Monday. I meant to bring it with me today. I'm sorry I forgot it. But we received it on our, our on our Internet. We have a prayer link on our Internet, and there's several people in the church that are added to this list and, and have asked to be a part of this list. And this email came in. And when I read it, man, I was struck. brought? Did you look at these compliments and say, man, that's what I'm going to give my energy to? Or look at these common day, or condemnations, these, these things that he says, you've got to quit this. You've got to repent of this. Did you look at that and say, man, that's, that's me. I need to repent. I need to turn away. I need to walk from that. I need to trust in this. I need to lean on that. I need to rest in grace. I need to trust his power. It, did you think about the principles that were being laid out? Did you put them into practice? Did, did they mean enough to you, Jesus' expectation on your life? Did they mean enough to you that they changed what you did the next day? Or that they're changing what you do today? I mean, look, you may not realize this. I don't, I don't go around advertising this. It's just our core values. It's a sign that's out there every week. And every one of them is built out of these seven churches. What Jesus called them to. The gospel. It's the thing that made the churches. It's the reason they existed. It's the reason he was writing. It's the, it's the power that they had to bring life. Does that mean anything to you? 
Does it, does it move you to think that Jesus died in your place for your sins? Does that, does that excite you? Like, he just calls you to trust in him. No, no, no more work for your righteousness. Trust in him for your righteousness and now work for his glory. We move from gospel to truth. Does it matter? I mean, here he commends Ephesus, man. Ephesus was a, a great and strong church doctrinally. They knew it. They taught it. They lived by it. Other churches, man, he told them, you got some problems there. You're letting false doctrine in. Not only did you let false doctrine in, but now it's, you're allowing it to shake the way your people live. The truth. Love. Ephesus, man, they got hammered for this. All the things that they had good about them, they had lost their first love. Do you live to love Jesus first? Is he the preeminent primary person in your life? Are you, are you motivated by what he's done and what he's called you to, to live obediently to him? Are you motivated for his people that he might gain glory in this world? Are you willing to give of yourself the way he gave of himself that you might see people benefit from that? That's love. That's what he called us to. Might be tired of testing ourselves, but the reality is there's more. Community. He demonstrated in every one of the churches that they were expected to be a distinct people, a counterculture, excuse me, a counterculture in the culture. A city within a city. Not isolated in such a way that they couldn't touch the world. Not isolated in such a way that they never involved themselves in the world, but distinct in that they were focused on Jesus and his fame other than the false gods and the worship practice of worship that everyone else was involved in. They were to be a community, depending on one another, serving one another, pray, praying together, living life together, meeting needs for one another. He commended it. He said it. Authenticity. Are you living a hypocritical life like the Sardis, the church in Sardis or those Laodiceans that said that they were one thing, but in reality were another thing? You see, Jesus called himself authentic in one of the letters, and then he called them on their hypocrisy. Are you real? Is your commitment real? Are you putting on a show? Commitment. Man, this is something our culture struggles with today because we don't recognize commitment in being something we stick to no matter what happens. In our culture, when it gets tough, man, let's just quit. It's easy. And Jesus has nothing in Laodicea or Sardis to, to talk to them about their commitment. They're not enduring. They're not persevering. They're not suffering. They're not doing these things. But, but he commended it in other churches. Their commitment. They're willing to continue on in spite of the difficulties. Missional living. Every one of these churches, he called them to this. Whose kingdom are you building? Who does the bank account you own exist for? Who does the retirement plan you're, you're putting away exist for? Who does your time and your energy exist for? Who do you exist for? You see, the reality is we no longer belong to ourselves. We have been bought at a price. And Jesus says, now I'm putting you among my people. 
And now you belong not just to me, but one another. Romans. Go look it up and read that. You can read the whole book. It's worth it. You belong to one another. You have responsibility to one another. Every instant of your life, every circumstance, every struggle, every trial, every every good thing that you feel like happens, every bad thing that you deal with, every every part of your life is intended for God's purpose. It's intended for His mission. Sunday mornings. Oh man, I just showed up here so I could learn today. This is mission. This is His mission. When people walk in this door, they need to know that they, that they are loved and they are, they are welcomed and that the call extends to them. When people walk through this door, they need to know that, that there is a power among us that is more than us. They need to be able to experience God's presence. They need to know that God is moving. They need to recognize that there's, we're real people being worked on by a real and powerful and victorious God. This is mission. This isn't some, some moment set aside. This is mission. When you get up and you go to lunch, it's mission. When you gather with your community groups in the middle of the week, it's mission. It's for His purpose. It's a a moment in time that exists so that He can use you for His glory. And that might sound self-serving of our God, but our God knows you were designed. Like water was designed to bring refreshment, you were designed for His glory. You will only find satisfaction as you exude and live his mission for his glory. Everything else is empty and left wanting. Test yourself. Test yourself. Listen to these words from Jesus. Listen to them again. He says to them, you think you're rich. You think you got it figured out. You think you know what you're doing. But what you see is success. Jesus defines as failure. You are blind. You are wretched. You are poor. You are pitiable. But it doesn't stop. These are Jesus' people. And he says, he says, he says, I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire. He's talking about this pure blessing and this wealth that comes in knowing Christ. Not physical wealth, not having, not having more money than you know how to spend. He's talking about this, the, the wealth and the blessings that come in knowing him. He says, come and buy gold from me that's refined by fire. Just live in my blessing. I counsel you for this so that you, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You know, this is extremely particular to them. They lived making clothes. They lived making this eye salve that brought and helped eye problems. They lived in this and they thought, we got to figure it out. We don't need you anymore. Jesus says, no, you need me at the basest level. You need me, please buy gold from me. Hear me, respond to me. Turn back to me. He says this. See, Jesus is faithful and true even when we aren't. You see, I know, I know this test. I know, I know that asking some pretty direct questions and coming to you pretty in, in your face, I know it's difficult. I know we don't like thinking of ourselves as these people. But the reality is this. If we don't deal with this, if we don't answer truthfully and honestly, we'll never be able to understand His call. 
will never, will never be able to hear him say, come and buy gold from me that you may be clothed. That you may be able to see. And we're never going to hear this call to repentance and this offer that he makes to provide what our hearts obviously long for, that true fulfillment and complete satisfaction. We're never going to hear it if we can't get by who we are. We're never going to hear his offer as it comes. And he says, he says, I counsel you to buy gold for me, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and, and, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and it may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline the hardness, the difficulty of dealing with these moments as a result of his love. He wants you to know this is the truth. Only he satisfies. Only he brings fulfillment. And he will use his creation to do that. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Admit you're wrong. Turn to truth. That's what repentance is. Recognizing, man, that my perspective's wrong. I'm wrong. Jesus is right. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And unfortunately, this verse is used over and over for evangelism. Here in its context, this is his people he's speaking to. He's calling for them to hear him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He's not just offering fulfillment and satisfaction. He's offering intimate relationship. You see, that's what this meal is about. It's what the presence in, in, the, in, the, in, in your heart, in, in dwelling you is about. It's, it's a, a moment by moment, intimate, ongoing relationship. And even a church like that one, like that in Laodicea, even that church, Jesus offers those things. And then he comes to the place. He makes this amazing promise. The one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on the throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You see this, this letter is relevant to us today. Not because I say it is. But because the spirit makes it so. Because Jesus words make it so. Hear what the spirit says has to say to the churches. I, I want to be real honest with you just for just another moment and we're going to be done. I know we're not Laodicea. That's how I know. We struggle. You think about the year we've seen going back to August. There's been constant, constant change. Tell me that doesn't bring friction. Tell me that doesn't bring difficulty. We're sitting in a room where we're hearing children on the side, other side of the wall, and I know every week I know there's struggles in that room because teachers don't feel that they can that they can really keep control of the room because they're scared to death to, to, to cause more problems in here if they get a little louder to get control of the room. People in here are distracted. That's a struggle. Oh, man, what a wonderful thing that we're able to do and teach our kids about this love that Jesus has for his people. And to encourage them to grow up in a way in such that, that they're not living just to be moral creatures, but that they're loving Jesus and becoming moral creatures because of their great love for Jesus. Our teachers, I, I hear about it often, our teachers struggle because one week there's two kids. Next week there's 15 kids. 
and they're all in one age group. That's a struggle. But all we're doing is faithfully approaching it as if Jesus can overcome because Jesus can overcome. His Spirit can work in the midst of that. We don't have all the fluff and all the stuff. All we got is Jesus. I, I know, I know that, that we're not Laodicea because I look and I, I, I enjoy a position in this church. Sometimes it's not a joy, I'll just be honest. I am in a position in this church in which I recognize the struggles of your lives. Some of you have come and talked to me about, about them directly. And I've sat with people for months now who have dealt with discouragement. It's not discouragement simply because they're discouraged. It's discouragement because they're recognizing a struggle against their flesh. And Jesus is calling them to die to themselves. I've been a part of a process with, with a few guys who have come alongside and said, we feel called to lead. I've been a part of this process where I'm watching them have to put themselves to death. And I'm seeing the fruit come out of that. I'm looking at my life as a, as a pastor and as a leader in this church, and I'm recognizing that what God is doing in the midst of all of this is making me a stronger, bolder, more courageous leader. Not living for your approval, but striving for His glory. I know, I know that there have been changes and people have struggled with some of the things we've done and the things we led them through. The fruit of God's work is this, that in changes that other churches are seeing people leave because of, we're maintaining unity through it. Actually getting to grow because of. That's a, that's a fruit of God's work. I know we're not Laodicea, but please hear me. Please hear me. There is practical application in this letter from Laodicea to some people in our church. Test yourself. Community group leaders, the challenge is this. The next time you gather with your group, test one another. It starts here, inside, but it has to happen from outside as well. It's one of the reasons we have a community. Let's pray. God, you are good. You're gracious. I know that these things are difficult. I know that some of these things feel offensive, but God, I am thankful that you discipline and, and reprove those you love. Because I know that that's where we gain growth. And then that's where our lives begin to reflect you. So God, I don't want to remove the struggle. I don't want to remove the conflict. I'm just going to ask you to call us to that point of repentance, to hear you knocking that you might come in. God, I, mean, I, I just beg of you that you'd help us to see those ways that we are prioritizing other things over you, that we're looking for satisfaction from things other than you, that we are finding identity in the world around us rather than in the creation to come. God, would you just show us that we might repent, that we might trust, and we might walk faithfully and obediently. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.